0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast
1: One. This episode contains descriptions of violence. Use your best judgment. People don't really hitchhike anymore, especially if they're traveling a far distance. In the 70s, though, it was something people did all the time. The hitchhiking craze might have died down because public transportation improved or because Lyft and Uber became popular. But I think it's more likely people just realized that it could be dangerous. Getting into a car with a total stranger is really risky. Hitchhiking was even made illegal in several states. And if the case you're about to hear is any example, it was outlawed for good reason. This case of hitchhiking gone wrong began in 1975 and took nearly 30 years to be solved. From A&E, this is Cold Case Files. I'm Brooke, and here's the original Bill Curtis with a classic case, The Hitchhiker.
2: I was going through our cold cases at the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department and Lieutenant Smallcomb told me about a case
0: that he had worked in 1993. Kevin Bailey is a homicide detective with the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office. In April of 2004, Bailey opens up the cold murder book on Jerry Sullivan, a hitchhiker found shot to death in the summer of 1975.
2: Uh, The first thing I do when I get assigned a case like that is I go through the case file itself. In reviewing that evidence list and reconciling that with the case file, I saw that there was a pretty particular important piece of evidence, and that was a fingerprint.
0: The fingerprint was lifted off the inside of the victim's wallet almost 30 years earlier. It is a lead that takes cold case detectives back to a counterculture revolution and murder inside a patch of woods in Northern California.
3: Well, uh, here we're at uh, Navarro, California. We're about
0: approximately 15 miles from the coast. In the fall of 1975. Detective Ralph Mays and criminal technician Grover Bethards walk through the woods and into a crime scene. He was lying face
3: down. All you could see was the top of his head. And I recall the sleeping bag was zipped open slightly. Slightly, yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Inside the sleeping bag is the body of Jerry Sullivan, a cast on his left leg, and a bullet in his brain
2: you could not see anywhere where somebody had been scuffling or any fighting or anything went on.
3: We'd not only searched this midi area here, we searched up, we expanded our air, our search area all, you know, all up into these redwood trees here and, and all around. I remember, you know, we walked down along road the highway looking the highway for the highway, whatever looking we for could find. In yeah. fact, we went
0: across the road. Police bag up an assortment of items, including the victim's sleeping bag, maps, and a cigarette butt discarded near the body. What investigators don't find, however, is anything that helps ID their victim. On him.
2: No wallet, no other cards or anything with them. And so we try first, one of the things you try for, of course, is fingerprints.
0: Methods checks the victim's prints against the DMV database and pulls up Sullivan's license. The 20-year-old is originally from New York State and hitchhiking up the coast.
3: In the mid-70s, they call them the hippies, you know. Everybody living free and doing pretty much what they wanted to do, uh, kind of living for the day.
0: Detective Mays contacts Sullivan's family members, but they can offer no clue as to who might have wanted Jerry dead. That is, until two days later, when Sullivan's family receives a package in the mail. Inside it, the victim's wallet. The wallet,
3: the insert, including the driver's license, Uh, had been nailed back to the address that appeared on the driver's license.
2: It was given to me by Sergeant Mays, and he wanted me to see if I was able to develop any fingerprints on it. And I was able to develop a nice print on the plastic case to the driver's license.
0: The unknown print is entered into California's fingerprint database. In 1975, it fails to generate a match.
3: With the cast on his left leg, you you know, that was a pretty obvious... Yeah, Yeah. that would be pretty obvious when you saw that.
2: It was clean, you know. I mean, it wasn't when people drove by or looked at him and stuff.
0: (laughs) Meantime, detectives continue to pick through the back roads of Northern California, looking for anyone who might have picked up a hitchhiker wearing a cast.
4: I mean, of course, I wasn't real happy to be seeing the Mendocino County Sheriff because, you know... At the time, I smoked a lot of marijuana, and I wasn't real, you know, what are they doing there? In
0: 1975, Kathy Smith is 24 years old.
4: I lived in an old apple orchard, like like in a tent, and so it was living very close to the land, and um, it was really nice. It was beautiful. I loved it. I loved it.
0: Three days after Jerry Sullivan turns up dead, Smith's commune with nature is interrupted by a visit from police. Locals in the nearby town of Philo tell police Smith picked up two male hitchhikers. Smith says she had picked up the two men several days earlier, and one was wearing a leg cast.
4: I picked him up, and I told him that I wasn't going all that far, probably five or six miles down the road. So I had both of them get into my car, one in the back and one in the front.
0: Kathy Smith is one of several locals who apparently picked up the two hitchhikers, one of whom detectives believe to be Jerry Sullivan. The other hitchhiker? Quite possibly Sullivan's killer.
2: We interviewed several of the people that gave him rides, and I did what they called an identikit of a person's features and face, so we made up a composite of this person. We had several different composites made up.
3: After after we... uh had uh, developed the, the, the composite drawings, we were able to, in talking to enough people, learn of a uh, free school, they call it in them days, up, up the coast from here, uh, probably about 25 miles up the coast.
0: According to witnesses, the free school, called Summer Hill West, was mentioned by the second hitchhiker as a place he had once attended. Mays heads north, to see if anyone at Summerhill might be willing to talk.
5: There was this huge movement, actually, to Mendocino County, and we were part of that movement. And even though we were a school, they called us a commune. We were Summerhill commune. In
0: 1975, Heidi Bohan is living at Summerhill West, a destination of choice for a lot of young people heading north out of San Francisco. In October of that year, Detective Mays arrives on campus asking a lot of questions and carrying a composite sketch of his mysterious hitchhiker.
5: That was a period of time that it was extremely sensitive that you didn't have relationships with the police.
3: I, I interviewed and talked with a lot of paranoid people. You know, they were always wondering, you know, well, you know, why, you know, what are you looking for me for?
5: We were a counterculture and so to call the police and to, to actually initiate um, some sort of contact was a big deal.
0: Heidi Bohan might not like the police, but murder is a serious matter. When Bohan sees the composite sketch of the man believed to be Jerry Sullivan's traveling companion, she decides to come forward.
5: I thought it was this young man that had not been there very long. Uh, I wasn't close to him, wasn't someone I knew real well. Oh, but his name was Bob Holt.
0: The name Bob Holt is one of many to land in Detective Mazes' notes. Efforts to track down Holt, however, go nowhere.
3: And it was disheartening, you know. Like I said, Mr. Sullivan, the father would always, you know, we were in contact. And he always wanted to hear something positive. And oftentimes there was nothing
0: good to tell him, you know. An unknown fingerprint, a hitchhiker, and a name... Jerry Sullivan's murder is a puzzle one detectives won't piece together for another 30 years
1: we're all overbooked overstimulated and constantly running on empty for me I'm always rushing to produce episodes and then cleaning the house taking care of the yard walking the dogs I barely have enough time to eat complete meals, let alone prepare healthy ones. But being busy doesn't mean you have to resort to takeout or overly processed food. That's why I love Daily Harvest. They deliver the food you want to eat, but you don't have time to make, right to your door. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code COLDCASE to get $25 off your first box. Daily Harvest makes it easy to eat more fruits and vegetables with thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted foods that can be prepared in 5 minutes or less, which is less time than it takes me to order takeout. They work directly with farms to harvest organic fruits and vegetables at their peak, and then freeze them within 24 hours to lock in their nutrients. Everything stays fresh until you're ready to enjoy it. Choose from more than 65 different options like smoothies, hearty soups, harvest bowls, and overnight oats. Each recipe takes one step to prepare, with room to make them your own. Add your favorite milk to blend up a smoothie or heat up a harvest bowl and top it with an avocado or fried egg. My current favorite is the apple cinnamon oat bowl. I like to cut up fresh apples and put some raisins in it sometimes. Whether you're at home, at your desk, or on the go, Daily Harvest is the easiest way to have a delicious and nutritious meal or snack. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code COLDCASE to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code COLDCASE for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. Hi everyone. If you go to the episode description, you can check out our sponsor deals. Our sponsors make it possible for you to download cold case files each week for free. So check out the promo code deals. You might just find something you like, something you need, or a great gift for your friends and family. A man was found murdered at a makeshift campsite in the woods near Navarro, California. Though the police located several of his belongings, there was no identification found near the crime scene. The police determined that the victim had been a man named Jerry Sullivan. His family couldn't think of anyone who might have wanted to harm Jerry. A few days after Jerry's body had been discovered, his wallet, with his ID inside, was received by Jerry's family in the mail. The investigators pulled a fingerprint off of the license but they weren't able to find a match in the database in 1975. A decade later, that fingerprint was once again analyzed and led the investigators to a woman named Kathy Smith. She'd mailed Jerry's wallet to his family after she had given him and another hitchhiker a ride. The police focused in on identifying that second man, possibly Jerry's killer.
6: When I was referring to the... Uh wall of shame to the Hall of Fame. The wall of shame this when we, Mr. Sullivan's case started. His case file, he got to remember, wasn't even actually here.
0: Kurt Smallcomb is a detective with the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office. In 1993, he opens up the file on Jerry Sullivan, a hitchhiker found shot to death 18 years earlier.
6: When I started going through it, uh, just reading the case and then coming across the, uh, l- looking at the latent print, and the information like that, it was okay. It's workable, and let's go, you know, let's, let's go to work for the solvents.
0: Smallcomb runs the single unknown print lifted off the inside of the victim's wallet through APHIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System.
6: That led to uh, department just coming back with a hit on Mr. Cordero.
0: Mr. William Cordero is a resident of Oregon a man with no hard criminal history, but someone with a lot of explaining to do. My
6: reaction was, hey, this could be our guy. We felt that, hey, you know, this guy's gonna have to have a pretty good reason why his fingerprint would be inside the victim's wallet.
0: In the 1970s, Cordero had ties to the Mendocino area, often going there to fish. Smallcomb decides to travel north to Oregon to talk to Cordero and perhaps do a little fishing himself.
3: What's going on here? Well,
6: again, uh, the reason we're here is there a
2: homicide that happened years ago. Okay, in the year of 1975.
0: Inside an interview room 250 miles north of Mendocino County, Kurt Smallcomb begins digging at the newest suspect in the Jerry Sullivan homicide.
6: Started going up there, it was all about getting the statement.
2: Were you ever in Minnesota County in 1975?
6: Get the statement from Mr. Cordero, if I can put him in the location.
2: You know, I might have been there because I'm a salmon fisherman. Okay.
3: And I know a lot of people here and there.
6: Putting himself in that location, I'm thinking, this guy's pretty good.
2: Did
7: you
6: ever pick
2: up any hushikers? Oh, I imagine yeah. I probably did back in those days. You know, there a lot of food, huh? Now I don't, but...
3: Then I did. No.
0: Yeah, I have, yeah. that
6: was the for myself. I with a cat. He absolutely denied knowing anything about Mrs. Holmer, ever finding anything belonging to anybody else in Mendocino County.
0: Cordero is never told about his print found inside the victim's wallet. After their interview, the suspect lawyers up and refuses to speak to police a second time. Without enough evidence to charge Cordero, detectives are once again stymied and the case again goes cold. Until 11 years later, when a fresh set of eyes gets involved and gives an old cigarette butt a second look.
2: Our victim, Gerard Sullivan, was not a smoker. And I noticed that in 75, they had collected a cigarette butt from the crime scene.
0: In April of 2004, Detective Kevin Bailey inherits the Sullivan file from Kurt Smallcomb. Bailey believes William Cordero to be his first and best suspect, but needs more evidence before he can charge Cordero. That is when Bailey notices a single cigarette butt sitting in the Sullivan file.
2: I felt that we did get DNA off that cigarette butt, that it would match Mr. Cordero.
0: Bailey sends the butt out to be tested. While waiting for the results, the detective heads north with D.A. investigator Tim Kylie for another chat with Cordero.
7: I haven't done anything like anything that hurt anybody ever in my whole life. Okay, well
2: then let's clear it up. Let's just sit down, go over this thing, and be done with it.
0: Bailey and Kylie confront Cordero with a search warrant. Initially, they don't tell the suspect about his fingerprint found inside the victim's wallet.
2: He maintained there was no
7: contact with Mr. Sullivan. He had never hitchhiked with anyone with a leg cast. He had already told us that there was no, that he had never found a wallet, that he had never seen the victim's body. And um, so he couldn't come back now and say, yeah, I did find a wallet or or some excuse. So we felt it was safe to tell him at this point about the fingerprint. Your fingerprint was found on his wallet. On his wallet? inside his wallet. And that insert. I can't believe
2: that. It almost seems like enough evidence for you to take me to jail. He went through various emotional states. At one point, he was lying on the ground outside his residence, almost weeping. Um, But again, he maintained that he had no contact with the subject.
0: Emotions aside, Cordero offers no credible explanation for the print and is asked to provide a DNA sample. Detectives promise they will be back in touch. Next time, perhaps, with a warrant for Cordera's arrest.
4: This is the main DNA extraction laboratory. Uh, this is where we sample the evidence.
0: In the summer of 2004, DNA analyst Deanna Kaser has a stack of cold cases to work on, one of them almost as old as she is.
4: I was born in September of 1974, and, and this, cap, this case happened in 1975, so... Um, Yeah, I thought it would be interesting to do a case that was almost as old as me.
0: Kaser pulls out a cigarette butt collected from the Sullivan crime scene 29 years earlier. She suspects DNA extraction will be a long shot, until she notices that the cigarette was actually hand-rolled.
4: Presumably, the saliva that's in between these two creases is somewhat preserved because it's not exposed to the elements in any way. It's kind of smashed between the two pieces of paper.
0: Kaser is able to extract a partial genetic profile. Before she compares it to William Cordero, Kaser runs the sample through CODIS, the state's DNA database. When she does, Kevin Bailey's murder investigation takes a turn.
1: We all want to take better care of our bodies. Getting all the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis can be challenging. Enter RITUAL the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Two easy to take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health with no shady additives or ingredients. Right now, get 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash case to start your ritual today. I like the great taste of ritual. They taste minty, not like vitamins. And since I've been taking them, I feel like I have more energy. From D3 to omega-3, Ritual's Essential for Women helps fill gaps in a woman's diet. Their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach. All of Ritual's ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. And it's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering cold case listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com coldcase to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com coldcase.
2: She says I did get DNA off the cigarette butt and I do have a match. Of course, we're all assuming it's going to be Mr. Cordero. Um, And she gave me the bad news, as it was not, It came back to Robert Vaughn.
0: Robert Vaughn is a convicted murderer now sitting in a California prison. Even better, Vaughn carries a history of attacking hitchhikers.
7: Robert Vaughn had uh, attacked a man with a rock while the two of them were camping together uh, in a rural area, uh, very similar to this murder.
2: It's definitely one of the reports that jumped out at both of us. And, you know, that was almost T for T, the motive that happened in ours.
0: Bailey and Kylie do background on their suspect. Deep in the paperwork, they discover a second connection to the Sullivan murder.
2: In reviewing Mr. Vaughn's rap sheet, I see that one of his aliases is Robert Holt, H-O-L-T. I go through the case. I find a scrap of paper uh, that was written by Detective Ralph Mays at the time. On that scrap of paper, I find the name Bob Holt.
0: In 1975, a 20-year-old named Heidi Bohan ID'd a student named Bob Holt as a possible match to a composite sketch of the killer. Bailey tracks down Bohan and emails her some recent photos of Robert Vaughn.
2: I just asked her, look at the photograph and tell me if this is the person you knew as Bob Holt back in 75.
5: When I opened it, I actually um, immediately said, that's Bob Holt.
7: You coupled that with with the DNA evidence, his violent history, and the assault that he did um, with a person that survived with the uh, rock in the head, and, you know, this looked like a sure thing.
0: Tim Kiley might think it's a sure thing. Assistant D.A. Richard Martin, however, feels otherwise. I told him I need a confession. I I, I need uh, this guy to admit that he did it, uh, or an eyewitness that saw him do it. Uh, because right now he can't say that he was not at the scene. We can prove that, you know, without any doubts at all. But we have to show that he was involved in the homicide. Bailey and Kylie need more than a cigarette butt to make their case against Vaughn. They decide to sit down with the suspect and see if they can get him talking.
2: I told him, well, we're here investigating a homicide that occurred about 30 years ago, and I think that maybe you can help us.
0: Robert Vaughn doesn't really want to talk, but remains intrigued as to how and why detectives suspect him in Sullivan's death.
7: He seemed very curious as to why we were there. We told him it was a homicide. Um, In our minds, of course, he knows why we're there very, very well. Tim Tim told him we're going to get there. And what Tim told him is you're going to love it.
2: But you're going to tell us your story before we tell you ours.
0: Vaughn is doing 15 to life on an unrelated murder charge and is up for parole in a couple of years. Bailey lays out a few hard truths for the convict. What his life will be like if Vaughn refuses to talk to police.
2: And what I told him is, you know, you've been before the parole board and you've been denied. And you plan on going again. Like this case is not going to go away. And you're the guy that did it. Now you can go before the parole board every five years for the rest of your life Saying I don't know anything about this case, and I'll be sitting in a chair behind you saying that you're good for it. I said, Or you can probably for the first time in your right life in your life do the right thing for the right reason. And he said, I think I can clear this up for you. He goes, I can tell you the caliber of the gun. And that started the dialogue for the for the interview.
7: We had an argument, and I forget
2: what it was about. We had a fight or something. So when he was asleep after after the argument, he's sleeping. Yeah. And what happens after? Sullivan did. Okay. You remember how close you were or how far away? What did I
0: learned. Robert Vaughn provides Bailey and Kylie with a full confession, and eventually pleads guilty to Sullivan's murder. He is sentenced, according to 1975 laws, to a term of seven years to life. William Cordero is eventually cleared of any involvement in the murder. Although the existence of his print on the victim's wallet remains to this day a mystery. After his confession, Vaughn presses detectives, still curious as to how they got on to him, what clue he left behind.
2: That cigarette butt's what brought us here. And I get plugged into this case and there's a cigarette butt at the scene, and I submit that, and guess what?
7: And it hits on you.
3: So we a cigarette butt? I kid you not, I
7: promise. Robert Vaughn says, Something like, isn't that something? You know, it's my favorite show. is the Cold Case documentaries. I love that show. And uh, one of us said, well, maybe someday you'll be on
1: that show. Robert Vaughn, who was already serving time for a murder he was convicted of in 1991, is currently located in a correctional facility in California. He was denied parole in November of 2008. He's currently 63 years old. Cold Case Files, the podcast is hosted by Brooke Giddings, produced by McKamey Lynn and Steve Delamater. Our associate producer is Julie Magruder. Our executive producer is Ted Butler. Our music was created by Blake Maples. This podcast is distributed by Podcast One. The Cold Case Files TV series was produced by Curtis Productions and is hosted by Bill Curtis. You can find me at Brooke Giddings on Twitter and at Brooke the Podcaster on Instagram. I'm also active in the Facebook group Podcast for Justice. Check out more Cold Case Files at AETV.com or learn more about cases like this one by visiting Visiting the a e Real Crime blog at aetv.com slash realcrime.